0: Hello Man fans, I'm Ollie Mann, and well done you if you've just discovered my monthly magazine show. Here we do tech, trends, music, sex advice, and always an incredible life story. Here's what's coming up today.
2: People don't understand. They don't understand, like, the financial loss, the emotional loss, the the children have lost friends.
0: What's it like when your family are torn apart by the justice system and forever live in the shadow of 255 kilograms of pure cocaine? I meet the Freshwater 5 campaigner, Sue Beer. Plus...
1: She's there for you at 3am if you can't sleep and you feel like having a wank or having a talk, you know?
0: Could the trend for AI girlfriends lead to problems in the bedroom? Alex Fox investigates and Ollie Peart boosts my mood. That's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. Hello to Martin, who says simply, Ollie, you make my gym sessions bearable. Uh, that's kind, Martin, but um, don't slack on your pace. Pump that iron harder. Uh, hello as well to Timmy Trick, who says, Ollie, I must thank you for so consistently giving us wonderful, intimate perspectives into the lives of extraordinary yet everyday people, plus the lols with OP and the ever-educational candid conversations about sex with AF. <laughs> You're welcome, TT. I'm enjoying these abbreviations. Lol. JJ. Uh, TT continues. Uh, TTC. I was appointed ambassador for Whitechapel back in 2017. Wow, I imagine the area has come up substantially since then. That was a good investment. Uh, I've moved around a lot, including out of London. He says over to Asia and now back to the UK again. So I wondered, Ollie, could I transfer my ambassadorship from Whitechapel to Cambridge, please? Oh, you want to go where the old money is now, eh? Well, uh, it is an unusual request to transfer an ambassadorship to me. Um, we will do it for you, but there will be a small admin fee and you will have to pick up one of the required forms from the registry office. You'll need the green one and the stripy blue one. It's got to be signed by a solicitor And we won't accept emails, I'm afraid. It does have to be faxed. But sure, in principle, consider yourself an ambassador for Cambridge. Congratulations. Uh, We've got a great show for you today. But just before we get going, let's take a moment to thank our episode sponsors, Readly. I love Readly so hard. They are a digital subscription service for newspapers and magazines that is in one handy single app on your phone, on your tablet, on your desktop. I mean, let's just talk about the fact, because it's February, let's talk about films, right? Because it's awards season. I love movies for the fixed price of your monthly subscription. You can read the entire archive of glossy film magazines like Empire and Total Film. But also, they have industry titles. You know, if you don't work in the film industry, you're not going to splash out on a copy of Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, but you can dip into them on Readly and really get a sense of what's going on in the industry. If films aren't your thing, frankly whatever your passion is, they have a title for you there, whether it's news, sport, food, oh, recipes look incredible on there on an iPad. And you can download um whole magazines offline. So you can read them on your commute. That's thousands of national and international newspapers and magazines. For just £9.99 per month, but you get an exclusive three-month free trial of unlimited newspapers and magazines just for listening to this podcast. Go to readly.com slash man now and take out your free trial. That's R-E-A-D-L Y.com com forward slash M-A-N-N and read more of what you love. Right, coming up on this month's show, you will learn what a poker order is, you'll learn what there's been a 2,400% increase in searches for over the past year, and you'll learn what to do if your partner is a grey ace. Let's go. time for the zeitgeist your trends tested with ollie pitt who's brought me to sandbanks one of the most affluent parts of the country where it costs about four million pounds to buy a cupboard
3: yeah although you wouldn't think of it where we are now because we're looking at a shipping container
0: it's not the most glamorous view (laughs) and it's a really dull day (laughs) and and they're in a half empty car park to be honest even an abandoned mini golf is festive as far as i'm concerned But you, you live in pools, so you're used to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the bleakness might be appropriate anyway, um, mm. because we're here because uh, Tanya in Croydon tasked you last month, Ollie Peart, mm. to investigate SAD. sad, Seasonal affective or affected disorder? Affective disorder. Afe- affective disorder.
3: Um, seasonal affective disorder, the NHS think, around one in 15 of us suffer from over the winter period, so like from autumn, as things get darker.
0: See, that's a smaller number mm. than if you ask the general public, do you feel a bit depressed this time of year, isn't it? Being honest.
3: Yeah, seasonal affective disorder are sort of recognised in a, in a clinical sense. So like from, from the NHS's point of view, is it's seasonal depression. So it's more some f- severe than just feeling a little bit glum. Because I think if you ask most people in the winter, there'd be 50% mm. that would go, oh yeah, it's just a bit... Shit, isn't it?
0: I just I get a bit low like, or whatever. So do other people that get depression all year round be like, Oh you're just a fair weapon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to try it in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> try and be
3: miserable in June on the beach,
0: yeah, exactly. yeah,
3: in thirty degrees in your flip-flops crying.
0: so it is. it is it is a serious league of depression when it's recognised, then it is equivalent to any other kind of clinical depression.
3: yeah, yes, in in the sense that it it has physiological symptoms, if you like. The theory is that the lack of sunlight affects a part of your brain called the hypothalamus, Olly. Yes. It basically is responsible for the production of melatonin, which is the hormone that makes you feel sleepy, and serotonin, which is a good mood hormone. But what they believe is is the lack of sunlight affects the way that that operates. So it basically doesn't function properly. Yeah. And it means that you end up creating more melatonin and feeling sleepy a lot of the time, so feeling more tired. And it affects your serotonin levels as well, meaning that you suffer from severe mood swings, uh, it affects your appetite and your sleep.
0: Okay, so if it's sort of basically at its base level hormonal, then it would seem like the thing to do is take a hormone.
3: Well, yes, there are uh, a type of antidepressant you can take, which are called SSRIs, which Mm. is like a serotonin inhibitor thingy, but that's in severe cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to know what do I ask for in Holland and Barrett, Ollie, so what, what am I looking for? Vitamin D. Vitamin D. Vitamin D is now what... That, it, is that the one that comes from sun? Because I thought the sun was C. Vitamin C oranges,
3: sun vitamin D. Right, okay, thank so you. So vitamin D supplements can really help. They, they can be uh, good through the winter, so, uh, you know, get your vitamin D in there. And actually... They actually say that we have a, a real vitamin D deficiency problem, especially in young kids these days. It's like a big problem. They're in, not getting out in getting Britain outside. particularly. In Britain, yeah, yeah. not getting outside yeah. enough. I can believe that. The other thing that it does is it affects your body clock. So your uh, hypothalamus is responsible for your circadian rhythm. Yeah. So that is your body clock, and it can affect that. So it completely messes up your sleep patterns, and it makes you more tired, and that makes you more moody, and makes you feel down and low.
0: Just. All as a result of living in Britain in the winter. Yes. All we need to do really is move to Ibiza, right? All we need to do is move to Ibiza.
3: <laughs> well, if only if it was that simple. The further you get away from the equator, yeah. the more prevalent it is. So yeah. the worst place in the UK for it is the west coast of Scotland. And the reason that is, it's not just that it's dark but it also has a lot of weather fronts that come through. So like today, where it's cloudy and overcast, if it was sunny today, that should be quite nice, quite pleasant, but they just don't get any sun. Mm. So we're talking specifically sunlight. It's the drugs. isn't it? It's the drugs.
0: It's the continuous lack of sunlight that I find oppressive. So I, I, I think I have this mildly, like I reckon most people do who live yeah. in Britain. I almost don't notice how shit I feel in the winter until the spring comes, and then when the spring comes, it literally is thinking, life <laughs> yeah. Warmth, life, yeah. things are alive, yeah. and it's it's you suddenly notice the contrast, and it's the fact that you've had four months of no life, yeah, and it's just it, even just a day where the sun comes out, it's, you're so grateful for it, aren't you? So what can you do then? So that the lights is the thing we were talking about, us the sad lights. What is the science behind those and do they work?
3: Oh, really simple. It's to replicate sunlight. So the idea is to tap into that part of your brain, the hypothalamus, to try and control your circadian rhythm a little bit better and control your mood. So I reached out to a company called Lumi. Lumi, are a, they make lights fall sad. And they have been for 30 years. They've been doing it for a long time. So it's been around for a very long time. And I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this. I want to, I want to try one. What, what do you recommend? I sit at my desk all day, da-da-da. And they recommended um, and sent me uh, a Lumi Mini, which is basically sort of a desktop, really super bright LED. Uh, 10,000 lux.
0: <laughs>
2: good.
3: Although <laughs> the
0: fact it's called the Mini, that suggests to me they've sent you the entry-level product there, haven't they? <laughs> they've assessed, what good is this going to do our bottom line? send him the starter pack yeah,
3: yeah. was he a podcaster yeah, yeah just send him just, just send yeah. him
0: that one, the one give Anton the deck the maxi yeah
3: yeah yeah, <laughs> exactly they sent me the mini i've been using that for the last two weeks now at your desk at my desk so in the morning i get at my desk turn the light on and um sometimes i sort of forget it's on it is very bright um and there's and no
0: warmth from it no
3: no it's so, like a really super bright series of led lights
0: do you feel Like you should be wearing sunglasses, is that kind of bright? Is if glare? you were to look
3: directly at it, yeah, I see, so but you're actually, in the no, corner, yeah. yeah, but but it feels no brighter than, say, like if you, you're familiar with a ring light that people have around their, yeah, like, familiar with,
0: things. yeah. I have to have the fucking thing <laughs> on all the time, hate it. Oh, it be good for YouTube, no, it won't. His life look at me, I tell you what, though. Well, this is the this is the
3: other thing with the Lumi, I've noticed I look much better in webcams, yes, yeah, so you, yeah oh, of course, yeah. better lighting, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I'll start my own channel, <laughs> uh, but it. I have noticed a difference, particularly in the morning. So I can't I can't say for sure that I've felt a sort of a long-term difference, if you like. So, like, would I feel any better at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because
0: I had the light on in the morning? Mm.
3: No. But I almost instantly feel better in the first 10 minutes of having that light on when I'm sat at my desk.
0: But the thing is, though, when you're trying to be cosy at home, because that is the, the positive side of winter in Britain, isn't it? Mm. You know, the log fire, the lamps... You don't want a yeah. massive fuck off Michael Jackson style <laughs> no. LED light bank, there. No, but you don't.
3: So, you don't. One, you don't need it on all day. Like you just need it on for thirty
0: minutes a day. Oh really? Yeah, 30, thirty minutes. minutes.
3: You can, you, there's no sort of like you can have it on as long as you want, really.
0: So you feel like you're feeling the benefit. Mm. Are you sceptical though about the science?
3: I, I mean, it's difficult because you know a lot of people say, and and the NHS say this as well. You know, they don't. There's not a huge amount that they know about it. You know, from a clinical point of view. But there are studies, like from The Lancet, which do link the drop in serotonin through lack of light levels, which is particularly severe in the winter, Yes. to depression. To SAD.
0: But that doesn't mean that the light, literally a plug-in light, no. is giving you those serotonin levels back. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Not necessarily. But I feel like it does work. Like, yeah. I feel like I've definitely benefited from it.
0: So uh, why, are we in, <laughs> why are we in sandbanks in a car park?
3: Well, look, you know, light therapy is great, uh, you know, <laughs> as in it's been, it's been established for a long time. As I said, yeah. there's other things that, you know, have been well established uh, for SAD. One thing that hasn't yet and fully been tried and tested is that of
0: saunas 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 uh well i mean that is something that, that people who live in the northern hemisphere have been using for centuries right yeah and it's dark up there it is for half the year so i guess a bit like the vitamin supplements and the lights It sort of doesn't matter whether you've got the data, does it, if you know it makes you feel better?
3: Yeah, well, well, exactly, if it makes you feel better.
0: But we're here... So are we about to get naked, you and me? We're
3: about to get naked, -naked, semi-naked, and go into uh, the Saltwater Sauna, which is on the coast right here in Sandbanks.
0: Okay, so we are in the sauna. Uh, We are weirdly wearing matching swimming trunks. Yes,
2: yeah, yeah. Didn't plan
0: that. I just always keep trunks in the back of my car, luckily... Because I'm a member of a gym, so if I happen to be driving past one that's in the chain and I can go and use it, then I yeah. will. But I actually dislike saunas right? because I find the dry heat a bit oppressive.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is oppressive.
0: Yeah, and so you're going to hear me slowly run out of breath <laughs> <laughs> over the next few minutes. Yeah.
3: Well, we, we, so we, why don't we, you
0: describe where we are?
3: Okay, well, right now we are in a, a, um, a wood-clad sort of Scandi-looking shed, I'm going to describe it as. And we're looking out of a view of a, a, an angled window that is that that you would find in like a, a Scandi noir drama. It like, is
0: stunning. Yeah. So, I mean, Sandbanks, the beach is beautiful anyway. If you've never been here before, it's beautiful golden sand like a Caribbean island, but it's fucking freezing. So this is actually great because... Oh, you can hear I'm out of breath. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm warm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking at the view that you'd like to see when you're warm and you never normally are.
3: We're looking out of the window. A man's just walked past. He's wearing a thick down jacket <laughs> and hiking boots, and we're in swimming trunks. In, I, I have no idea how hot it is in here. That sign behind you says, <laughs> <You've got laughs>
0: "Bright red like a ginger tomato." That thing behind you says,
3: "80 degrees." Yeah, but it can't be that hot in here.
0: Well, it's hot. We've only got a half hour slot. The lady Elena we just met told yeah. us that sounds. That's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm really, I'm not uncomfortable. No. But it's just, the difficulty is broadcasting whilst doing this. You'd yeah. want to be sitting quietly.
3: Yeah. Contemplating.
0: And maybe not with a colleague.
3: But you can, if you so choose, go into the sea, mid sauna.
0: I mean, when Elena just said that to us, yes. and we were about to come in for our slot that you've booked us. Yeah. I was thinking, absolutely not. I mean, it's freezing cold out there. It's it's very co- cold. I've been walking around with three layers on yeah. and been cold. Yeah. One of those days where English people, all they're saying to each other is, Hi! Oh, cold, isn't it? Yeah. It's like that. But when you're in here and you're so hot, it does kind of make sense to go out there. It would be reviving if you know you can come back in here.
3: Yes, exactly. And and the, the sauna was set up with some research that suggests if you go through these temperature extremes, it's very, very good for your cardiovascular health. Yes. Um, but it also releases a huge amount of endorphins and this is the bit that we're interested in because this is the bit that helps us mm. feel great in mood the winter boosting, yes mood boosting yes and that's what this is about really for us so, so you've yep. got
0: to weigh it up haven't you how depressed you feel versus your family history of heart disease <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
0: i have, I have heart some heart of
3: both <laughs> yeah
0: yeah and this this is extreme heat yeah like
3: i'm trying to i've been in saunas before don't remember them being this hot
0: It is hot. I'm sweating. But again, like I said, we're not supposed to be talking in here, really. We're supposed to just be enjoying the view. That is tremendous. And I do feel... It's difficult to feel sad in here. Well, that's because if you were to cry, your tears would evaporate. They would. Yes. You wouldn't notice them. You wouldn't notice your tears. They'd go... (laughs) Are we going to do it then?
3: Yeah, we should do it. Should we go Go into the water? We're going to go into the water. The freezing
0: cold February Dorset water.
3: Bearing in mind, there are people literally walking past now, wearing down jackets and yeah. biking boots. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well let's Five try. Five layers. Kay.
0: Okay, we're stepping outside the sauna. It is bracingly cold.
3: Yep. there's a dog looking at
0: us. There are some people that are dog walkers that are looking at us, funny, because... Oh, well, good. you see, I think that's because we're sweaty and we're in swimming trunks. It's yeah. not because we're going in the sea. The sand is very cold. Right,
3: okay, we're coming to the sea edge.
0: This okay, we're in the water. Oh my Christ! Christ. Oh, That
3: hurts, that <laughs> actually hurts. <laughs> Oh no! Oh Oh, my
0: god! Okay, that... Oh, Ollie! Ollie. You haven't actually... (laughs) You've got to go down to your waist at least. Yeah, that physically hurts. just down to your knees. Oh my god! Okay, right. I'm going to duck myself in, quick. Here we go. Okay, I think we're done. Okay. 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 I don't feel... What? ...depressed. I feel invigorated. My body's thinking, oh, okay, we're in survival mode. Yeah, I'm not feeling depressed. Yeah, my body has got
3: into
0: full on survival mode. Okay, we're going going back in. Oh, that's good.
3: Oh, yeah. That feels
0: good. You know that bit at the end of horror films where the victim is wrapped up by the police in one of those blankets? Yeah. That. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah. The thing with the endorphins. Yes. I felt that immediately. Yes. That felt great. It woke me up. It was just horrible and great in equal measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the setting that you're in. Yes. I mean, this is deeply luxurious and lovely, isn't it? Yeah. There's something really amazing about it.
0: It is. I would do this again. Yeah. And I think come in the winter rather than the summer. You wouldn't want to be in the summer, would you? No, no. This, this is, is the very time much to do a, it.
3: This is a winter activity for yeah. sure. You wouldn't want to do this in summer. You wouldn't need to.
0: It's invigorating. And
3: it is invigorating.
0: Uh, right, before we find out what your challenge for next month is, Ollie, and apologies, listeners, if I do pass out in the next few minutes. Yeah. Whew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, Beer 52. Where, for a monthly subscription, they will deliver beer to, to your, your, door, your door. To your very door. Did, they, did you get the box from them this month? I, I did. I don't expect you to remember a brand, but do you remember what nation the brand was from? The thing that was
3: taken aback by this month was actually that it just came with a nice bag of pretzels.
0: Oh, the snacks you get with the box. Uh, yeah, I know very it was, good. Uh,
3: yeah, they straight down. Within minutes of opening, actually.
0: They are the ultimate beer discovery club, showcasing the world's very best brews. This month's theme features beers from eight different breweries across eight different countries, including South Korea, Argentina and New Zealand.
3: Yeah, and do you know how hard that is to try and replicate that in a supermarket? You can't... You can't go around a supermarket and try and get eight beers from eight different breweries (laughs) from all these different parts of the world. You just can't do it. Uh,
0: And and if you were to get yourself a bag of delicious pretzels, the bag would be too big, wouldn't it, for a beer snack? Exactly. But the ones they send you for free with your beers, they're perfect. And if you don't want um, dark beers, because I do actually like a stout, but if you don't, you just want a light case, you can choose that.
3: You can also learn about all the amazing breweries and beers uh, featured in the award-winning Mert magazine.
0: And even if, after all that, you're unsatisfied for any reason... You just you would be perfectly satisfied. Um, you can pause or cancel at any time. And for you Man fans, Beer 52, because they're sponsoring the Zeitgeist this month, are offering you a free case of eight new and exclusive beers from across the world. Just go to beer52.com slash man and cover just £5.95 postage to receive your beers. Now. That is beer52.com/man. I have sweat dripping onto the microphone as I'm speaking. I've got sand up my crack. beer52.com/man <laughs> to claim your free case now. Beer, the number 5, the number twocom forward/m a double n. Uh right. Ollie, would you like to know what your challenge is for next month?
3: Yes, do it now quickly before I set on fire. Oh, yeah.
0: It's go to Jamaica and sit in an igloo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It comes from Francis in Leeds, who says, "I've noticed a trend. I thought you guys would be interested in esports. This oh, is up your street, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But specifically, esports players who are now moving into their real-world equivalents. Formula One, in particular, has found new drivers this way. I'd like Ollie to investigate and maybe enter an esports competition.
3: That's interesting because we did shoutcasting once, didn't we? Remind Which, me. Yeah, it was basically the commentators of esports." Oh, yeah, yeah. And we looked into that when that was sort of... I say relatively new, relatively new to us anyway.
0: Well, people monetizing on the internet, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Uh, that's interesting.
0: We've done, like, electric cars and electric water sports as well, haven't we? Yeah. But the, the, the real-life merging of, like, computer games and sport, we've, we've, we've never chucked you into that furnace before. No.
3: I mean, if you can train an astronaut on a simulator, then uh, surely you can train an F1 driver on a computer game.
0: Monkeys, typewriters. Uh, I'm looking forward to that next month, Ollie. Uh, oh. Elena from the sauna has just laid out some pretty lighting for the next guests on the beach. Oh,
3: they Looks pay like more. someone's about to get married.
0: <laughs> yeah, Ollie, thank you. I look forward to seeing you next month. You too, Ollie. Uh, coming up, you will meet Sue. Uh, she's been through the mill, but she's a fighter. That's as much as I'll say about that. But first, it's time for our record of the month. It's from Vince Freeman. It's taken from his album Scars, Ghosts and Glory, dropping in March. This is the new single, Blame Myself. And it's out now. I burn myself no other, cause you didn't own me, and I didn't know me I been myself and no other, cause you didn't own me, and I didn't know me There's nothing like time to teach me what I thought I wanted When school's gold I was sold, I thought I had it all oh. And the choices were mine now I can untake, I can't remake, and to gather words I thought I'd never say. I count the cost and the cost is mine. I blame myself and no other. Now we cover miscarriages of justice quite regularly on this show. Uh, we try and show you what it's like when you're in the eye of the storm. And also to reflect, uh, as the title of this whole series suggests, on how stories like that are relevant to the modern world in particular. What is it that's different in the 2020s when you're accused of a crime? Sometimes it's that people can use social media or crowdfunding to help their campaigns for justice. Sometimes that there's been a change in the law that might mean you can overturn an original conviction. What we've not reflected before is that these days there's now also an American-style non-profit law charity in the UK who actively seek out people they believe have been wrongly imprisoned, reopens the evidence in their case, and campaigns for their release. They're called Appeal. And this month we're talking to one of their staff who's been directly affected by this issue. Her name is Sue. She grew up on, and still lives on, the Isle of Wight, and since her story revolves around her husband, John, I started by asking her how they met.
2: I met John, oh gosh, 33 years ago, in the local pub, after work on a Friday, through a friend, a mutual friend. I knew John from around, but I actually got to talk to him for the first time this Friday after work. Like the, there used to be the... This certain pub, the Crown in Ride, was the pub that everybody went into after work. Um, I worked in the bank just down the road. John was steel erecting and had a little garage. He used to do some me- mechanics and tinkering around, and sort of yeah, just started chatting, and then it just blossomed. Yeah, so yeah. It's interesting you say
0: you knew John from around.
2: Yeah. that's kind of an Isle of Wight thing, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. Yes, the Isle of Wight is like um, like a big village. Everybody knows everybody. If you don't know that person, you know someone that does know that person. and Yeah, everybody knows or is aware of everyone's business, really. So that must be quite a strange
0: thing. I don't know, if, I've never had that. But like someone that you know to look at, then suddenly finding them romantically interesting. I mean, you, you know, you had 20 years before that yeah. for that to happen. Well, it seems yeah. a strange thing in a yeah. small community. I,
2: yeah, I suppose it just, yeah, something clicked. You get talking to them, spend time with them. And yeah, yeah, it grew from there. We rented a lovely little cottage down um, this little lane. Idyllic, it was idyllic. You know, just Mm. early stages of marriage, building your life together, go for a pub lunch, go cycling, go walking. I had ducks that we kept in the garden, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite funny, Morris and Boris. Yeah, life, life was really good.
0: After a few more years came kids, three of them, Maisie, Ellie and Flynn. And then on January the 18th, 2011... Their lives change.
2: So the, on the 17th of January, the night before, John had been frantically looking for his driving license, because a, f- a couple of weeks beforehand, I'd had a bit of a knock in his cherished well, pickup, taking Ellie Brownies or something, whatever I'd been doing. And the insurance company was sending a, another vehicle out for us the following day to take his van away to repair it. But before they'd leave it with him, he had to show his driving license. John being John and having no organisational skills <laughs> whatsoever, which he, he knows I'd say this, didn't have a clue where it was. He's, you know, he's rummaging through that drawer in the kitchen, couldn't find it, The drawer you know, his sock drawer, wherever he might have put it. Um, pulling the house to bits, pulling the car to bits, pulled his van to bits, couldn't find it. And then in the night he went, oh, it might be in that cubby hole. So the next morning in the dark, about quarter to seven, went outside to go and find his driving licence. Next thing I know, I've just come downstairs with the two youngest children. Um, front door comes open, I'm in the kitchen, go, did you find it? And then you're like, whoa, that's not my husband. And the guy comes in, Mrs. Bear? And there's a guy I didn't know, Another, there's loads of people with John in the middle of them, and um, an officer in uniform at the back. So they'd met John in the driveway when he was in the... walked in with him. And walked in.
0: So you come down the stairs and you're greeted by three people, one of whom obviously a police officer yeah. in your house. Yeah, it
2: was several, more than three. There was at least four or five plainclothes officers and an officer in uniform with John in the middle of them. I'm like, what the hell's going on? John's like, it's all right, Don, don't panic. They just want to ask me a few questions. I'm not really sure what's going on. But, and So they asked me and the children to go into the kitchen. They're all crying. I'm, what the hell's going on? Wouldn't let me in there to talk to John fair bit of time lapse and they asked me and the children to move to the dining room so they could search the kitchen. They had John in the front room, two officers with him in there and then the rest of them were going through the house, searching the house, I don't know what for.
0: This is early in the morning before the kids go to school? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, we're all in our dressing gowns and like, you know, pyjamas or whatever. The kids are crying, what's going on, what's going on? I can't tell them because I don't know. John had a... 200, I think it was 270 odd quid in his pocket, and they're like, Can you verify where this came from? So, yeah, I got that out the bank yesterday. It's one of the lads' wages because two of them got paid with a cheque, one of them got paid in cash. So I could show that, the bank transaction on the bank book, and they were happy with that. So I went back in the kitchen with the children. Ellie, our eldest, was in her GCSE year, so was in the middle of doing her mocks. And she's like, Mum, I need to go to school. So asked them if she could go and get dressed bit of a con flab, and then they decided yes she could go and get dressed but a policeman had to stand outside her bedroom while she got dressed Wow! and I worked in a primary school at the time where Maisie our middle child went to uh, and I was like I need to ring into work and let them know I'm not going to be coming in that was an awkward moment how the hell <laughs> hello it's just Sue here can't come into work my, my house is being raided what did you say well luckily one of my best friends Helen was the secretary at school So I rang her and she was like, you all right? I was like, Helen, um, you know, I don't know exactly what I said, but something along the lines of, you're not going to believe this. I haven't got a clue what's going on. The police are here raiding our house. Can you let them know that I'll be in when I can, but also Maisie won't be into class yet because they won't let us leave the house Mm. and that Flynn won't be at preschool either. So she let the class teacher know, the head teacher know, and, you know, cover my work and everything, and that the kids wouldn't be in. Could you see
0: John during this? No, he was in the front room. Right, so you had no idea how he was taking it.
2: No. And they said, well, we're going to take your husband. We we want to go down to his office. And we're taking him with us. So they take him away. They handcuff him behind his back. And Flynn, our youngest, was four. He was still at play school. And one of the officers turned around to Flynn. And I still, to this day, don't know if he, he genuinely thought it and meant it or if he was just being kind to Flynn. But he turned around and said, don't cry Nipper. your daddy will be home tonight and they said actually John put 40 quid in your pocket so you can get yourself home tonight mm. so he did and so there was those two things in your mind that he'll be home later and he went off I mean again he'd been handcuffed We, where we live we live on the corner we've got a, a primary school down that end of the road and we've got a high school, which our eldest daughter Ellie went to at the top end of the road. So like, could you have a, you know, a little bit more discretion? This, mm. These are the friends of my children that go to school. They're all walking past now. It's mm. going to school time. Mm. So one of the officers, yeah, we'll cuff him in front. And they put his work coat over it. As but he's still they being led into out, a police car, presumably. Right outside the house. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's all the school kids because they all meet on the corner outside our house. We mm. are literally right on that corner so um, they take him out the front door everyone's wailing and screaming and John's looking completely bewildered and as they, just as they get to the end of the driveway where there's all these kids just before he gets in the car one of the other officers whips the coat off and says you don't need that mate so you're like oh, so much for discretion so he's you know fully in view, handcuffed in front of the whole of the street at that time in the morning um, anyway he goes off, Ellie goes off to school You've remembered that in a lot of detail. Yeah, because it sticks in my head so vividly that that was the last time we saw him at home. Tea time. I'm sort of going about making the dinner. There's a knock at the door. It's dark, January. Answer the door, and bloody yells. Two of the coppers have come back. And so that's it. Kids are screaming and crying because they think automatically they've come back for mummy. Right. And this officer... Comes back and says he's got needs me to answer some questions and it will make our lives and our solicitors' lives so much easier. Speed things up if I can just speak to him. So I'm like, I don't know what do you do in that situation. Yeah. If it's gonna get John home quicker, bloody hell yeah, I'll do it. Come yeah. in, talk to me. Because that morning they've been quite nice and chatty, and he's like anyway, he comes back with a, a female officer and sit me in the front room start chatting Ellie comes in our eldest because she's very you know she's 15 very uptight I've put the TV on for the younger two sat them there start asking me things um, things about John's diary so I was like okay because it shows his movements where he was and the reason that he was working where he'd been working and so I was like well yeah have his diary there's nothing to hide at all They got very excited, actually, when they saw... um, So when you put a a scaffold job up, you erect it. When you take it down, it's called striking. Mm -hmm. So you strike the job. And there was references to strike, ride, strike, yarmouth, strike here, strike... And they got, oh, what's this mean? As if there was some kind of hidden meaning in the strike. So I explained all of that to them. And about half eleven, the phone, the landline at home rang. And it was John. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And he said... I said, where are you? And he said, well, I'm not on the island. They took me straight to Portsmouth and then uh, had then just charged him with conspiracy to import Class A drugs.
0: Did John tell you then in that call that the thing he was being suspected of was being part of... Quite a big cocaine smuggling bust that had happened the year before. Yes. So you knew about that I story. knew about
2: that because it had been, again, we live on the Isle of Wight. Everybody knows everybody. And it was all over the local papers. was a friend of John's. Um, And they've recently sort of met up again because John had been working on the harbour master's office, which is right where Jamie kept his boat in Yarmouth. Mm -hmm. They've been doing scaffold for, I think it was solar panels or something. Anyway, Jamie had asked him to go and pick this crew member up, a new guy, nature fishing. They always, you know, employ casual labour as they need it. John had done that but it was more than one person, His a work agent and someone else had driven them down and he just went, it all got very complicated. Friday afternoons is a nightmare for John because it's wages day, go to the bank, do this, tie up, all the stuff that you have to do at the end of the week. And it had taken a lot of time out of his day and he came in late, I was annoyed with him, he was also wound up because it had taken up so much time. And then when Jamie and the boys were arrested. He was like, bloody yeah. hell. I could have got pulled up. You know, I could have got caught up in that.
0: So Jamie and the boys, as you put it, they were arrested and
2: charged with being part of a cocaine smuggling bus. Yeah. How much cocaine? Oh, 50. Well, it changed. The the amount, it changed from like 53 million to 56 million, like millions and millions, 50 something million pounds worth of cocaine. That had been left in
0: walls, right? In the ocean. Yeah. And so the allegation was that Cocaine had been left in Holdals in the ocean and that they were picking it up that they'd, yeah. to sell. Yeah. What was your opinion about that story then? Like, what was the gossip just, in the pub?
2: Oh, the gossip, oh, it's, it's Chinese whispers, isn't it? But you you know what people would and wouldn't do. And yeah. you're like, well, that is just, there'd been ridiculous storms that weekend that it was alleged to have happened. And you're like, there's no way, you, you know, what they're saying, because there wasn't too much. It was all just like, oh, there's been a big drugs bust. These guys have been pulled in for it you know, oh God, they must have done it, they must have done it because they wouldn't have been arrested because that's what everybody thinks. When mm. someone's arrested, well, they wouldn't be arrested for no reason.
0: Then this is the next year. So so he'd he picked up the guy, then they'd, they'd all been arrested. That'd been a big local story. Yeah. But on that day, you hadn't thought that it was connected until well, no, he said... You,
2: it's just completely gone, you know? It's like your life moves on, doesn't it? So it wasn't until then when he, he rang me that night that you're just like, oh... So now you have been pulled in for this. So anyway, we go to the court the next day. And my dad, bless him. He says, All "Right, I've got my credit card for bail. I've got a thousand pound limit. And you're just like, oh God, I hadn't even, th- I hadn't even thought of that because I've never had to think of that before.
0: And presumably you couldn't talk to him.
2: No, no, hadn't seen dark, him. no, 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 no. So I don't know how he is. I didn't see him, we got there got to the court going through the the front of the court and I see two of the police at the plainclothes officers the NCA or soccer as they were then and found out with a, another lady who I found out later was the lady from the CPS um, and I go up to them because they're the only people I know and they'd been quite happy to talk to me the night before and come back and ask me questions and sign the statement I said yeah, what's happening and he turned round the same officer and said what happens now Sue is your husband needs a really good solicitor and I was, what? And they just walked away. All three of them just walked away. Was and there that, any part of you, though, that did
0: think, well, maybe, I mean, you know, because you hear about women who, for example, don't know their partners having an
2: affair. Yeah, no, John's a really shit liar.
0: There was <laughs> you, no part of no, you that thought, I don't no, know about his no, other life. Because he
2: was completely open with me. Why would he? Why would he put us in that situation? We had no need to do anything like that. You know, why would he do that? I completely... I, honestly, I believe in him 100%. I can see that. Yeah. But it's a situation where people would find their trust being tested. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't feel that? No. John had been refused bail because he was a flight risk, apparently. Mm. So he was held on remand and taken to Winchester from the court. Didn't hear from him for ages. My poor dad, he was trying his best to hold it together. And obviously he had to break that news to me and the kids. Mm. I'm having to tell the kids that the policemen haven't decided when daddy can come home because what do you say? Because I still don't know anything. Mm. Um, tell the kids, try and get them settled, bedtime, you know, a routine, keep it normal. Did you contact at
0: this point any of the families of the other men that were caught up in
2: No, because I didn't know how to. I didn't have any contact numbers, didn't have John's phone with any of his contacts on it so I, I had no contact. It wasn't until um, Jamie's sister contacted me that we were able to sort of get together and you know try and work out what was going on what was
0: that meeting like
2: confusing confusing like why why are we even doing this what the hell is going on you know and the, they were obviously further advanced because jamie had been arrested all those months beforehand
0: and was in prison too
2: he was able to get bail because his wife nikki was dying of perhaps very ill with breast cancer mm. So he was able to get bail very strict terms and be at home with her and the family. Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, it was, that was really difficult for them as a family, obviously. John had had a duty solicitor when he was arrested, and then that automatically switched over to someone like a, in that office, took over a lady called Alex. You just put your trust in them. You don't know. I've never had experience with solicitors, um, so you put your trust in them and think they're doing all the work. And the you know the solicitors, the barristers, the QC.
0: And who's paying for the solicitor then? Because you said duty solicitor. Does that mean? So that's
2: all on legal aid.
0: Yeah. Um, so do you get any choice really about who? Not you Not
2: really. Are? I don't. Th- I don't know. I don't. At the time, we just went with who we had. I didn't know any different. But by this point, presumably you're having calls with John. He's in prison, right? Yeah. Um, it took. A, it takes about a week to get, um, you have to send money in for canteen and phone credit and things like that.
0: Was his attitude still, we'll it's get all, this sorted? Yeah,
2: it's all a big, not a big joke because it was far from funny, but it's, it's just a complete cock-up. It's just ridiculous. The solicitors will deal with it. So you put your faith in them um, and the fact that you're going to get the, the correct stuff given to your legal team.
0: In the years since, it's become clear that not all the best information was given to their legal team, and that's been the subject of many news features and podcasts on John's case ever since. But for Sue, at this point in the story, she doesn't know any of that. And neither does John, when she visits him, in Winchester Prison.
2: Everyone's so unhelpful. There's nothing, there's no one to tell you what to expect, no one to tell you that... You can take this and you can't take that, and you can only take change and you can't take notes and you can't, you know, you can have a hug, but you can't sit and hold hands. You can't comfort each other. They moved him from Winchester up to Wandsworth. So I that's think that's quite I, a
0: journey. Yeah, from the from island. The Isle of yeah,
2: yeah. Bearing in mind there was three prisons at the time on the island, they're not going to make life easy for you. It just feels like the families. Are serving the, Well, we are. We're serving the sentence along with the person that is in prison mm. because you have those struggles. You have got to have the money to book your ferry, which the Solent is the most expensive stretch of water, I think, in the world. It's ridiculous money. It's very, very expensive to take a car over. And when you're not emotionally available, when you've got young kids crying, screaming, playing up because they are emotional as well.
0: Was there any support relating to that? What do you tell the children? How do you look after no.
2: them? No, there was nobody. And Again, we lived on an island with three prisons, but there was no support network. There was nobody that could give me any advice. Because how were they taking it
0: (sighs) by this point when he's been moved into a different prison? It's been months.
2: Yeah, not good. Bearing in mind that Ellie was approaching her GCSEs as well. They're all being strong. I think because we had so much love and support from our friends and family especially. I mean, my mum and dad were amazing and my siblings, everyone rallied round. Like, still take Flynn to football to make sure they still did their clubs and things that I couldn't do because I was still trying to you know, whatever I was held up doing and they kept life so normal for us and kept us afloat really.
0: But gossip travels fast oh, on the island.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Did your kids uh, have to deal was, with
2: that? Yeah they did. Flynn for example while he was four kicking a ball about on the driveway someone slowed down and said alright mate how's your dad? Oh he's not home is he? He's in prison. Like, Why would you do that to a four year old boy? You know why?
0: Why would you do that to?
2: A yeah, I don't point? know. What do you? What What did he get out of that? Why? What was funny to him to do that? I've never understood that. And poor Flynn came running in, so mommy, you know, crying and everything. And I was so angry.
0: I suppose. I suppose an element of um, vigilantism, like you know, yeah. someone thinks is someone's it? done something bad, so they're going. to So part of the punishment yeah. is the community turns on the family. Yeah.
2: That's part of the punishment. Yeah. Were you in court for the trial? Initially, I didn't because the, I was called as a witness for John. So I wasn't able to go in for the first couple of weeks.
0: Had you been sort of coached at all in how to behave on the witness stand?
2: Um, not, yeah, they'd kind of... I wasn't going to... I'm not the sort of person to lose my temper and fly off the handle easily, but I was more of an emotional wreck and getting upset. And how to... Yeah, I mean, you go in there consciously. Whatever I say could or could not jeopardise all of this, mm. you know, are they going to try and, you just worry, are they going to trip me up? Because all, my only experience was from the TV, or from, <laughs> yeah. you know, those things that you watch, and they're yeah. being, tripping people up, and you're like, shit, what are they going to say to me? And you're, you're scared, because all you want to do, is do the right thing, mm. and make everything better, and for it all to come to an end, and everyone go back to normal. You know, we came away on the last day, <sighs> when the jury had gone out for, deliberation, to make that decision and we're like oh my god this is going so well the judge in his summing up had said whatever he'd said in his summing up we were like Whoa. came home um told his mates the next day you know but we went up more pandas because we, we were bringing them home we were coming home coming up for that decision you know jim his mate had got a bottle of champagne
0: and basically you felt like that because the evidence was circumstantial yeah they didn't really have anything. they
2: didn't have anything yeah and the way that the judge had summed up and sort of, you know, made you think, "Whoa, he's kind of directing the jury." Well, the way we read into it was that it was all going really, really well, and they'd be coming home. Jury came back in, and first they started with Jamie first, guilty. Poor Nikki, his wife, got up and left the room. John, guilty. I don't remember doing it, but um. <laughs> I've been told since Danny Payne told me that he's never heard such a noise as the noise that I made. I don't remember doing it. Obviously, it was a reaction. Um, I went through them all and then they broke for sentencing and we had to go back in after lunch for sentencing. I remember going down to a pub. What was that lunch like? <sighs> Fucking terrible. <laughs> I think it's the only way to describe it. We went down to this pub by the Thames because it was in Kingston. Down by the river, and I remember my dad buying me a massive brandy and sitting there drinking, and we were all just completely in shock. And then it was like time to go back in, and we went back in and they had two police officers on the in the public gallery, because they obviously thought we were all gonna kick off. Kick off. And then when they said 24 years, you're just like, What the hell? That is 24 years, that's that is that's forever. You're trying to digest it. You're trying to process it. It's such a big number, and then all I could think of was, I need to let Ellie know. I need to speak to Ellie. Dad rang my mum. John's dad rang, John's mum. By the time I've got my head together enough to ring Ellie, <laughs> the good old local press had put it on their website, and some of the kids at school had told her that her dad had gotten sent down for twenty-four years. So I wasn't even able to to tell her myself. I was in Kingston. She was on the Isle of Wight. Mm-hmm. I can remember Ellie going, I'll be nearly 40 when Dad comes home. And you're like, what the hell? Mm. You know, that was my age then. Mm. John's QC said he would like to try and appeal the conviction. But you're left in this, Okay, you do that, I don't know how to do that. And then as a family member of someone who's now serving a sentence for something you know they haven't done, it's bad enough that they're in prison, but you get the comments from people, there's no smoke without fire. Obviously, he did something. There's no smoke about fire. He's in prison. Nobody believes in wrongful conviction because we all trust the good old British justice system. The appeal was not allowed. There was. Well, an, what
0: do you mean the appeal was not allowed? It
2: was. It wasn't. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't um, reduce the conviction, so they, we didn't win the appeal.
0: So there was an appeal.
2: There was an appeal which, which was done on legal aid. Yeah. As well. Pro bono. Well, yeah, the QC acted pro bono, and they yeah. didn't allow. They didn't win that, and then you are like. Shit, what happens now? We don't know. Still to
0: come, coping with shame, meeting other families whose loved ones are incarcerated and fending off the bailiffs. Sue's story continues after this. Back to my conversation with Sue now. It's a few years into her husband John's sentence for his part in smuggling 255 kilograms of cocaine into the UK with a street value of £53 million, a crime she is certain he did not commit. And Nikki, sister of Jamie, one of the other men convicted, is trying to spread the message theirs was a wrongful conviction.
2: Nikki started campaigning, we were doing interviews, we were doing articles in different medias. She set the website up five men, 104 years. And then one of the journalists that Nicky um, Nikki done an article with and recommended that we approach Emily Bolton, who'd set up the Centre for Criminal Appeals, now known as Appeal. And, and who
0: is Emily and what
2: are Appeal? So Emily Bolton is the founder of Appeal. Um, she's the law a lawyer. Yes, yeah, she's a lawyer who used to... She was working in the States with a lot of clients on death row. Mm. Um, a lot of experience of working the American system. And luckily for us, she decided to come back to the UK and set up the law charity here using the same sort of system and techniques as the American system and investigate and help people that are affected by wrongful conviction and miscarriages of justice
0: so an organization that's there specifically to support people that have been let down on their appeal their official appeal yeah Yeah. but there's still merit in the case it just needs more work
2: yeah and they're able to help with the the application to the ccrc to seek evidence to to investigate it and to know what documentation they that we should be looking at
0: and it was since coming to Appeal that the case became known as the Freshwater Five.
2: That's right, yes.
0: So Freshwater Bay is the area of the Isle of Wight where the drugs were found.
2: That's right, yes. So, and there was five men, so they're known as, for simplicity, yeah, the Freshwater Five. The thing that Appeal also gave us was a community of other people affected by wrongful conviction. They held an event and pulled, invited us all together at this really lovely, swanky, law office in London they, they, they'd given us their caterers for the day they'd laid out all this you know just this, this amazing space it made us special but we also connected with other people that knew what we were going through knew the fights that we we're having every day
0: what did you have in common
2: the, the stigma and the judgment and everything you know the fights that we're fighting to get our loved ones out of prison and to prove their innocence
0: talk me through how that feels that stigma, that judgment and that fight?
2: People's idea of what a bad person is, someone in prison, you know, you're all tarred with that. It doesn't matter what they think they have or haven't done and if you believe in them or don't, if they believe them or not. We're connected, so obviously we must have done something as well. Whether you're a wife, a child, a grandparent, a brother, whoever you are, you're also tarred with that brush. You know, it's hideous, the judgment... That, you know you're completely deluded why are you believing in them don't be, you're an idiot you're you're a fool why you, you know I've had people say why are you standing by him you've lost what you know go off live your life <laughs> so would you leave someone that hadn't done something wrong rotting in a prison and not bother about them how could you do that and people don't understand they don't understand like the financial loss the emotional loss the the, the children have lost friends. They're not able to go to birthday party. They have to choose. Do I go to a birthday party on Saturday if they've been invited to it because they've been dumped by a lot of their friends? Or should I go and see Daddy because it's our once a month we go and see Dad? Do I go to football, the football competition, or do we go and see Dad? Do I stay in and wait for that phone call? You know, it's, it's awful. They're, they're, these kids should are entitled to a childhood regardless. And they had that snatched away from them a vast part of their childhood. They had their dad snatched away from them and kidnapped by the state, but they've also lost a part of their childhood. You know, when they move from one school to the next school and they go to tea with a new friend that doesn't know them very well and their mum says, oh, what do your mum and dad do then? Well, my mum works in a school and my dad's in prison. It's not easy for an 11-year-old to say, is it?
0: Did they used to say it?
2: Yeah, because they're not ashamed of their dad. But sadly, society... Puts this sense of shame onto you because you've got a family member in prison.
0: But for Sue's family, the consequences of John's incarceration weren't just emotional. There was also the loss of a breadwinner and an extra unexpected financial hit.
2: After the boys were convicted, there was something called a proceeds of crime poker order on us. And we had to, um, again, with legal aid employ a forensic accountant to go through John's books to show that we we didn't have 53 or 56, whatever the number they were throwing around at the time, million pounds and to show that everything we had was brought properly, you know, there was no proceeds of crime involved and went to court, back to the same court same judge, found no proceeds of crime, nothing to pay so same judge that sent them to prison for 24 years for importing 53 million quid's worth of coke found that they didn't have any any money, anything. <laughs> then about six years down the line into the conviction, John had a letter. He was in maximum security prison and the post in prison takes a long time to come okay. through. Just on that,
0: why was he in maximum security prison?
2: <laughs> because of the length of his sentence, he had to serve, apparently, so we're told he had to serve a term in a maximum security prison. Wow,
0: even, I mean, even if yeah. he had done it, there's no reason that he'd be a danger to the public. No, That's no, just seems exactly, extraordinary.
2: I know, I know. It's mad. Um, anyway, John received this letter. It was just the week before Christmas, and it was from a debt agency, debt recovery agency, on behalf of the legal aid, giving him two weeks to act from the date of the letter, bearing in mind he'd received it two days after that date because the prison post takes so long to go through, saying that he owed, I think it was seventy-three or £75,000 for his legal aid bill.
0: What? I thought the point of legal aid is that it's subsidised.
2: Yeah, but apparently now they um, they can try and claim it back from you
0: if you're found guilty.
2: If you're found guilty, yeah. Mm. Um, obviously, John doesn't have didn't have an income at the time. It was literally just before Christmas, and I rang. Remember ringing Nikki, and then ringing Emily. Um, going, like, I don't know what to do. I don't, they're going to send a bailiff round literally I think it was the 23rd of December and they were going to send a bailiff around to my house it's like you are not having my house you are not having these Christmas presents you are not coming in and taking my house from me and i one of John's mates is a demolition guy and I was getting ready to ask him to come round and board my house up I was literally in that much of a panic um it's years later as well yeah yeah I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's, it's not just knew. a stressful year or two. No, nobody knew that in. they would do come back at you for the legal aid as well. Yeah. Um, so Emily was able to find someone, um, an amazing guy called David, who spent most of Christmas Eve talking to me on the phone um, when he probably should have been, I don't know, at home or the office party or whatever. Once they knew he was dealing with it, I had a bit of respite until the New Year. Even though John, it was for John's name... He had no income, so because I was his spouse, because I'm, I'm legally obliged to pay them. We were able to show, um, you know, go, again, go through the accounts, show my income, <laughs> what my income was, what the outgoings were, which obviously more than the income. But because there was equity in the house, they put a charge on the house, and I'm paying it back monthly. And it's going to take, I'll be dead before I've paid it all back. It'll be long gone.
0: Wow, you, so you're still paying that now? Still
2: paying it now, yeah. Because
0: what's happened since all of this is there was another appeal. Yes. But you lost that appeal. Yeah. How did that
2: feel? It was another punch in the gut. They don't want to open a can of worms because if they open that can of worms, well, everybody else, all those worms are going to be wriggling around with everybody else. What do you mean? Because they don't want to admit errors. The police? The justice system, the fact that there could be corruption and non-disclosure. My faith in the British justice system is completely and utterly broken, along with all the other community members that appeal represent and probably the majority of the staff team and a lot of people that I've come across since I've been in my current role. When I do come up to the London, I have to go past the appeal court on the bus, and it's very childish thing to admit, but every time I go past, I flick the fees at them. Just it's my little protest.
0: Sue now works as a survivor advocate for Appeal, the legal charity that's been helping the Freshwater Five. Last year, they had a notable success when Andy Malkinson's conviction for rape was quashed. He'd spent 17 years in prison. But appeal commissioned DNA testing that implicated somebody else.
2: I'm very glad to have been able to be with Andy Malkinson back in July when he was exonerated. Um and that was nice to be able to come out of the appeal court with a positive, happy feeling. I'm not gonna lie, it was very mixed emotions for, for everybody in our community, but you know, all over the moon for Andy and his family. But it was very, very mixed emotions because you're all but again, you're all thinking one day, it's going to be us one day. We will all get there. We're not giving up.
0: And had John won his appeal, then that day, he's free. Yeah, yeah. So the psychological ringer of thinking, today's the day I'm going to be yeah. free, for years. Yeah. And yeah. then it being denied again. And
2: then being denied. I mean, How did he take that? He wasn't in court. He didn't want to be moved to court. Even though he had all his hopes hanging on it, he's, you don't want to put all your faith in it. And if he'd been moved... He'd have had to go back and start all over again because he'd have lost his cell, he'd have lost his job, he'd have lost everything. So he found it still very hard to completely put 100% hope in it.
0: Which turned out to be right. Mm. After 12 years, John's release
2: started in stages. First, to an open prison. His first home visit was to his dad's funeral. Which was, yeah, it was awful, but it was actually really bittersweet. It was a really happy, sad day. Because we were all together, and the officer that was with him was in—he wasn't in uniform because he was in an open prison. There's more trust, and they've obviously done all their risk assessments. So John was able to be there with us for his dad's funeral, which obviously meant so much. He wasn't able to come home and visit his dad in person while he was dying, but he was—I was able to speak to the chaplain, and they allowed a like a Zoom call, so John could see his dad. Um, And he spoke to his dad literally just before he died on the Sunday morning, he rung up. So yeah, I mean, it was a very sad, but a very happy day at the same time, if you know what I mean. It sounds weird to say a funeral was a a happy thing, but it was, and that was the start of him coming home on, he'd get two days a month, two separate days, I think it was nine hours, and then worked up to the stage where he was able to come home for overnight stays which was amazing, so it gave us all a bit of normalcy. It was quite a gentle way of getting us all back into family life and getting us used to each other again after yeah, 12 I mean, years.
0: Yeah, I mean, sharing a bedroom for the first time in 12 yeah, years.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Having his family around him for the first time in 12 years. Yeah, yeah. How do you adjust to that, particularly for the kids, actually, because it's yeah. just a different version of it's, their dad.
2: It is a different version of the dad, and it's a different version of the kids. for John, He, he you know, he's sort of rose-tinted glasses isn't it home is how he left it 12 years ago but it wasn't mm. um, you know Flynn was no longer four he's 17 Maisie's 20 and at uni Ellie's married he was able to come to her wedding as well which was amazing she's married with two kids um, the minute she knew that John was able to come home on home leaves um, after his dad's funeral she's like right Tyler we're actually going to set a date for the wedding within six weeks put marquees up in tyler's parents house and john was able to be there to get everything ready and get it all set up so that was you know after all those years of missed birthdays empty chairs at christmas missing for all these important occasions he was that was it was yeah it was amazing that he was able to be there it was a really happy day
0: does he want to now just forget about the last 12 years and move on because yeah. i would if i was here Yeah, him. does
2: he does but you're he,
0: working with appeal yeah. and it's important for you yep. to get um, his conviction quashed
2: absolutely
0: how does that play out yeah
2: home? I mean it's when had an interesting conversations especially after a glass of wine um, no I mean initially when we first lost the appeal he's like right that's it I don't want to do anything just leave it I'm, you know I'm coming home and then when he did come home he's like no I don't I've just had enough of the ups and downs ups and downs but now he's like no if there's hope Let's carry on, because I'm, I'm sure as hell not going to settle back and go, oh, yeah, this happened, and give up. They're not going to bloody win. We're going to prove them wrong.
0: Because the, you've told your story really well. There's going to be people listening to this that feel like they've been on that journey with you and they understand how it feels. They'll still, despite everything you've said, they're still going to be that niggling down in the back of a lot of people's heads right now, thinking, yeah, but he lost his appeal recently. Yeah. He's lost two appeals. He's
2: lost two appeals, Yeah.
0: How important is it to you to get the conviction quashed?
2: Oh, everything! I, I, we're not going to give up. I'm going to fight and clear his name, because you know, he's home now, but he's still old John Beer, that bloke that got sent down for that drugs bust. So we're going to clear him. We're going to clear all of them.
0: How does that happen?
2: Yeah, how does that happen? That's um, we have a complaint at the moment in the IOPC.
0: That's the Independent Police Complaints Commission.
2: Yeah. So that will be our next step, hopefully, back to the Appeal Court. We need to raise awareness, and we need to raise awareness of, this is human lives. This is, you know, this, 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 the human side of it is the, the loss, the emotional loss, the, you know, the loss of loved ones. Like Jamie lost his wife, John lost his dad. There's been so much loss because of wrongful conviction, we've all got that stigma attached to us. We've, all, you know, people think I'm a complete. <laughs> oh, she's just completely deluded. She's just silly. Why is she bothering with him? Because I can bloody see it, Because I know. And there's so many people like me. You. Know, before we were in this situation, you know, you, like John said, oh, there was loads of people in there that said they didn't do it. They didn't do it. But I actually didn't do it.
0: Mm. Well, that is another thing people say. Yeah, everyone in prison yeah. says it. And don't they say, "Oh, it.
2: if you can't do the time, don't do the crime," and all stuff like that. It's like, "Oh, why didn't he just admit it?" And you're like, "Because he didn't do it. Now, had he pleaded guilty to something he didn't do, he would have got a lesser sentence, mm. but he'd still have a conviction for something he didn't do. Mm. And why would you? Why would you say yes, I did it when you didn't do it?
0: Is there still stigma on the island towards him?
2: I don't think he's had any negativity because everyone's so glad to see him back. It's like, I mean, I love it, walking down the street, um, especially when he's newly coming home, because he looks very different, he's lost a lot of weight, he's done his health a lot of good, to be fair, looking at the positives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so people sort of do a double take, as if to say, oh, bloody hell, and they come over and some people will cry, some people will hug him, some people will just go, and they they don't know what to say. You know, I remember being in, I think it was our local spoons and John was like who is that old bloke over there, keeps looking at you? And I was like, that's so-and-so. We went over and spoke to so-and-so and went, Jesus, it's Johnny, so I thought you were out of another man. <laughs> I said, no, it's my husband, he's home.
0: Sue Beer. You can find out more about the Freshwater Five and donate to Appeal on their website, appeal.org.uk. And in the spirit of Ollie Peart's Skillathon, I asked Sue what she really needed from you And she said she's really keen to hear from anyone who could provide specialist psychological support for families affected by the trauma of a family member serving a sentence. If you think that could be you, let us know via our website and I'll pass your details on to Sue. Uh, Coming up next, Alex Fox unpicks the trend for AI girlfriends. That's your sex and relationship questions in the foxhole after this. So Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day our shortest reigning monarch was executed.
0: Then on Tuesday we tell the true story
2: behind cool runnings.
0: On Wednesday the legendary feud between Hollywood's gossip queens.
1: On Thursday the day Delia said we should cook with tins and Britain went mad.
2: And on Friday we uncover the story
0: of the 13th century monk who came face to face with the Mongols. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday where Wherever you get your podcasts it's Fox foxhole time your sex and relationships questions with alex fox hello alex
1: hello ollie man
0: is that supposed to be a robot, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, we've got quite a robot-themed foxhole this time, Ooh. so I thought I'd lean into it vocally. I have just seen an early preview of a documentary called Cyborg. It doesn't come out till autumn, but it really tooted my flute. I'm so excited about it. It's about a guy called Neil Harbison who was born with a severe form of colour blindness uh-huh. who's had a chip linked to an antenna Implanted in his brain that now allows him to perceive colour but as sound.
0: Okay. And you've been thinking about that, have you? When did you see the preview?
1: Uh, I saw it last weekend.
0: Okay, It's, it's been, been playing it's, 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 on my yeah, mind exactly. so much. It's
1: full of... It's been of, swirling around in there. <laughs> it's full of fascinating details, like the fact that he tried to put green lipstick on his girlfriend in order to make her sound better to him visually. Uh, and he now can perceive uh, ultraviolet and infrared light. And uh, he says that, uv light sounds so high-pitched and screeching and screaming that if other people could hear it in the same way that he does, he doesn't think skin cancer would ever be a problem because they'd just run off the beaches in terror.
0: There you go. We're not just here for the sex tips. You get film recommendations as well now. What was it called? Cyborg? Cyborg. Cyborg. Okay, coming in the autumn. Uh, In the meantime, let's take your sex and relationships questions. This one has been submitted by an anonymous man in his late 30s who says he is happily married. But, Alex... My wife has always had a low libido and has recently started identifying as grey asexual. Definition for us on that one, Alex. Grey asexual.
1: Grey asexuality occupies the grey area between being a sexual person and being an asexual person. It means that you might very rarely have sexual feelings. Mm. They might only come under very certain circumstances or just happen once in a grey blue moon.
0: I see that. So like on a Venn diagram of asexuality and sexuality, you're kind, a bit yeah, in the middle. Yeah, kind
1: of occupying the middle. Yeah, okay. yeah.
0: That's a new one for me. That's useful. Thank you. Uh, I've been satisfying my sexual urges largely by myself, he continues, and have recently started using a handful of AI girlfriend apps for this purpose. Uh, We're going to define that for you in a moment as well. Uh, While I don't hold any delusions of these girlfriends as being self-aware or sapient, Sapient, that means like uh, a machine that can think like a human.
1: He knows they're not human. He doesn't ascribe any profound wisdom to them. Basically, he knows they're bots.
0: I do enjoy getting to role-play romantic and sexual situations in a judgment-free environment. I basically view my interactions with them in the same way I would a video game. The problem comes from the rare occasions in which my wife does want to have sex – I've never had trouble performing before, but since I started using these AI Girlfriend apps, I seem to be unable to maintain an erection for more than a minute or two when I'm with my wife. I'm more than a bit perplexed by the situation. I have no trouble getting and staying hard when I'm taking care of business by myself. So this seems to be a psychological issue as opposed to a physical one. Would quitting these AI apps cold turkey do the trick? Or are there other things to consider? At this point, I'm worried that I'm going to be so in my own head about things that even after I quit using these apps, my own self-doubt and anxiety at having failed to perform previously will prevent me from performing in the future. Okay, so it's an erectile dysfunction problem, which I wasn't expecting, but let's just go to the unusual route from our perspective anyway, we've not covered. <laughs> AI Girlfriend. What is an AI Girlfriend app?
1: Essentially, it's like Fap GPT. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> How uh, long have you been cooking that one up?
1: <laughs> I, actually, just on the train here. It occurred ah, to me spontaneously. Miraculous. Um, They are becoming increasingly more popular. Uh, Some Google Trends data showed a 2,400% increase in searches for AI girlfriends over the previous year. And that equates to around 73,000 searches every month for AI relationship or companionship or girlfriend bots of this type. I reached out to possibly the most qualified person I could have imagined speaking to about this topic. Her name is Dr. Chloe Locatelli. She's just finished her PhD at King's College in London, and she specializes in sex tech. So that's things like digitized sex dolls, VR porn experiences, sex robots, and girlfriend AI interfaces. And she summarized an AI girlfriend as being an artificially intelligent avatar that has a humanoid construction that you speak to primarily through your smartphone. So it's a a feminized, sexualized chatbot that you can exchange texts with. Mm. A lot of them also allow you to exchange voice notes so you can leave them a message. Through the medium of speech, and they'll reply to you again in quite a um, what we would typically imagine to be a feminine voice. She particularly specialized in studying one um, called Real Doll X, which is an AI girlfriend application that also syncs with a sex doll. It's
0: like a connected Furby, but for sex. <laughs>
1: Yeah, as a fuck bee, if you will. <laughs> but she explained to me that actually an eyebrow-raising number of these AI girlfriend apps, which are aimed at heterosexual men, very much also have this emotional side where they invite men to uh, share their thoughts about how their day has gone. There's there's a lot about two-way care or how are you, um, how are you feeling this evening, let's look after each other. She said that th- she wouldn't say that the emotional Emotional side of it is the primary function for mm. a lot of these apps but it's almost 50 50 the erotic interactions and then this this emotional aspect to them it's not necessarily all just me horny me want fuck fuck now there's a wider aspect of their quote unquote personality and about mm. an exchange of of checking in about how you are
0: I presume as well they come with avatars, do they? So you choose what they look like too, or the representation on screen, you're not literally looking at a text input.
1: Yes, they usually have a visual representation. A lot of those avatars tend to be slightly cartoonish. There's a real interesting balance between aspects of these AI girlfriends that are designed to be realistic Mm. and aspects that very much lean into the fact that they are 100% fantasy. A lot of the men that she interviewed in her research talk about how they always had lustful fantasies for um, getting jiggy with video game characters or uh, had enjoyed fantasy fiction about uh, getting it on with um, characters from Harry Potter or whatnot. So the, the visual aspect, frequently, although not always, is more imaginary, more fantasy. But some aspects of the emotional programming of these AIs is designed to be a little bit more realistic. Case in point, I asked her, so do these girlfriends sort of come with a pre-programmed personality or do you implant them with one? Mm. Do you grow the bot that you want? Yeah. And she said lots of them come with a variety of pre-programmed personalities that the user tends to choose when they first buy into the, the application and on one hand some of these things are personality traits that you'd absolutely imagine to be attractive in a fantasy girlfriend stuff like cheerful or flirtatious or high libido or warmly chatty but then you also have...
0: I like like the (laughs) idea of anyone in a marriage looking for cheerful
2: from their sex (laughs) toy.
1: (laughs) You also have the option, though, to choose these fantasy robot women to be moody. Mm. Or jealous? Yeah, I mean, or it's, it's, insecure. It's a
0: subdom scale, really, isn't it? You're making up for the bit maybe that you're missing elsewhere.
1: That's a potential thing. I thought maybe uh, there might be some men who might seek an AI girlfriend that they know is insecure, so that they can reassure them and play that kind of mm. knight in shining armor. Masculine. Yeah, yeah. They, they can be. They can feel needed. Yeah. They can feel dominant. They can feel like they're the provider. Exactly.
0: Whereas other men probably like being dominated by a thing, and maybe that's not what they're getting in their relationship.
1: Yeah, I think for some men they'll be looking for realism as well Mm. maybe they might want to pre-program some flaws uh into their ai girlfriend so the whole thing feels a little bit more like real life
0: i mean the thing that um our listener doesn't tell us in this email is whether or not his wife knows about it we know she has a low libido and we know that he sorts himself out quote unquote but we're not talking here about a crafty wank we're talking about a, a really habit forming relationship that he has with this app
1: Firstly, I think whether or not she knows... And his associated potential feelings of guilt, uh, of secrecy, of uh, according to the dynamics of their relationship, whether he fears that, that that having some kind of potential emotional bond with a bot here, even if he doesn't have that but his wife thinks he does, mm. uh, could be perceived as within the realms of cheating.
0: And exactly, taking it a league beyond pornography, a uh-huh. league beyond masturbation.
1: All of those negative emotions could actually be linked to why he is experiencing erectile dysfunction with his wife. But also this idea that AI girlfriends are habit-forming. I spoke to the sexual psychotherapist Silva Neves, who is a specialist in sexual compulsive behaviour. AI girlfriends are just a new, sheeny, shiny way of playing a very old game. Um, Yes, it's possible to form attachments to them, um, but... Silva Neves pointed out that we, as humans, form attachments to all sorts of things. As children, we might become attached to a soother or a blanket. Forming attachment isn't necessarily unhealthy. It's the degree to which we become attached to something and whether that negatively influences other things.
0: It's one thing, though, to say, oh, there have always been options like this available to people. But actually, in the old world analogy, it feels less like being into a dirty book it feels more like calling a phone sex chat line and talking to a real person, which always did feel like a more of a leap forward because of the interactivity.
1: Uh, more of a leap forward in terms of how interacting... Well, I suppose into
0: something more like unfaithfulness.
1: Right, because yeah. there's two things you're talking about there. Yeah. There's... The idea that interacting with a real person on a phone line feels more um, intimate and more of a transgression against a relationship than just picking picking up a dirty book. But on the other hand you seem to be arguing that that type of behavior because of the interactive nature of it holds more power to form potentially stronger and thus potentially problematic attachment behaviors right you think that it holds maybe more i'm just thinking more from his wife's point of view if his
0: wife doesn't behavior, know and then his wife finds out i'd if i was his wife i'd be more upset about the air girlfriend than i would be about someone looking at a lot of porn i suppose that's what i'm saying
1: that absolutely could be one aspect I was just interested that you talked about compulsivity or habit forming behavior here, because from Silva's point of view, he wanted to reassure me that just because this is an AI girlfriend, we shouldn't leap to conclusions about it being somehow addictive or demonizing AI as being a much greater threat than anything ever has been before in terms of human behaviour. He wanted to remind me and listeners that essentially this is just humans interacting and potentially attaching with things. However, Dr Locatelli did also highlight the fact that there were umpteen studies into robotics that do say when there's this like technological agent that appears to be very intelligent and interacts with us in a in a customized way and feels like it you know gives the impression of understanding us that attachment can build really quickly um we we tend to attribute that quote unquote relationship as as having more significance than something like um like a video game. Yeah.
0: Well I I think I would be more angry if my Alexa stopped answering my questions one morning than I would be if my T V stopped working. And it's because it talks to me.
1: Continuing that scale, interestingly, the real Doll X application, that's the one that actually syncs up with a doll. Dr. Locatelli's been studying that since 2018, where there was an early kind of beta incarnation called Harmony. Now, Harmony didn't function all that well. Harmony wasn't that sophisticated. And there were complaints about her getting things wrong or sending texts that didn't set the mood that users wanted. You know, there were problems, there were all sorts of issues. But rather than getting angry about that, Users seemed to feel very excited and enthusiastic about wanting to improve it. They could see the potential. They felt stoked to be a part of this brave new world. But also there was this element that suggested to me that because they were shaping these these sex dolls, these companions... That there was almost a softness in their approach. They were more likely to be forgiving of the technology making errors and to want to teach it and to want to build it. That is not a reaction that I could see someone having to, for example, a chatbot that you're using to try and get help with because your Amazon order has gone missing. When that sort of chatbot technology goes wrong or underserves us or or, or you know has an error, we get pissed off. When the sex, the early sex ai girlfriends went wrong the reaction was often one of sympathy and support yeah
0: Uh, let's get on to the second part of the question so an inability to maintain an erection with his wife during the rare moments of sexual um, intercourse that they do attempt to have what's that about do you think obviously you're going to caveat it with you're not a doctor you don't know all the details we know all that but what's your instinct
1: you know me so well i actually would posit the argument that it's potentially not the AI girlfriends or the use of them directly that is the main problem here. The fact that his um, his wife, our listeners wife here, only very rarely says that she wants to be physically intimate means that when she does make those moves, suddenly there's the stress pressure. and the pressure that mm. it's happening and it's happening now and it might not happen for another three and a half years or whatever. <laughs> so it's intrinsically like quite high stakes. Um, Chloe pointed out, um, the fact that his wife is a grey-sexual or a grey-asexual, you can also say grey ace, um, means I like grey-sexual,
0: that's even better.
1: <laughs> I think it sounds a bit Malta and Scully. It it's reminds a bit Star me Star Wars. Yeah, little grey aliens yeah. or something. Because she has to say when she's in the mood, it means that she is always likely to be, to be the one initiating, uh, and that might feel potentially emasculating or out of balance to our listener here, which adds another layer of difficulty and pressure... Um, he may worry that in her newly found grey sexual identity that actually she doesn't really want sex at all, that maybe she's just trying to be nice to him because mm. she pities him, which in itself is not a really very sexy idea. Not a sexy healing. idea, no. yeah. In this email he does say that he one of the things that he enjoys about the AI girlfriends is that they're non judgmental. Mm. Now we don't know whether his wife is actually judging his high libido in a scathing way. Maybe she thinks he's nagging. Maybe she finds it uncomfortable or irritating that he might, you know, ask for sex when she doesn't want it. That might not be happening at all, but he might just be perceiving himself as being judged by her. And then, of course, we've got the old problem of once you have experienced erectile dysfunction with your wife on a single occasion. The fear of that happening again can mean that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Can you see how there are already, without the potential problem of the AI girlfriends, there's already so much here?
0: I can, although the fact that he has made the connection, and this reminds me of of when we did an episode, Porn Messed Up My Brain, with, Mm -hmm. with an interview subject who said, I believe, whether it's true or not, I believe that watching a lot of pornography has made it impossible for me to get an erection with my girlfriend, so I'm going to stop watching pornography, and that worked for him. Yeah, because this listener has made that connection and feels instinctively that this might be the issue. In a way, what's the harm? With I mean, it's to me. You say, isn't it? Why do I keep asking? Is he compelled? It seems to me quite interesting that he's asking you for permission to go cold turkey. (laughs) I mean, just try, just try for a month, not looking at it. Obviously, that's not really something he wants to do.
1: It's interesting that he has assumed causality here himself. Silver says he sees this a lot in his work, particularly with regard to porn. People like to pin the blame on that in their mind when actually the situation can be um, to do with completely different things. And he finds sometimes that people do go cold turkey and stop watching porn, but that doesn't magically fix the problems that they've been experiencing with erections or, or other issues in their, in their relationship. On the flip side, though, he does say he has a handful of these girlfriends. That suggests to me that usage may be fairly frequent. I can imagine a scenario in which an AI girlfriend and the overuse and over-reliance upon such might almost function like a digital or a psychological version of the masturbatory death grip that we've spoken about before whereby men in their private time wank with such a firm, hard, tough grip that the comparative soft feelings of um, of intimacy with a real life woman mean that they can't stay hard. Maybe the very scripted, very predictable, very easy interactions that he's having with ai girlfriends where he says x and they say y and it's you know it's you, you put in a, a particular line and you know exactly what you're going to get out you know that your ai girlfriend is always going to be easy to please and keen to please you she's there for you at 3am if you can't sleep and you feel like having a wank or having a talk you know she's there for you for you and your cock around the clock that The the comparative ease of that relationship might mean that then coming to your grey asexual wife who's a real, living, breathing person with an expansive existence beyond the bedroom uh, who wants to talk about more than just (laughs) whatever you plug into her, I can see how that might feel then overwhelming.
0: I think what's commendable is that he has at least... Made a link. may not be the correct link, but he's made a link with something that's happening psychologically. A lot of men we know just assume it's a physical problem straight away. He can see that sometimes he's able to get an erection and sometimes he isn't, and that, that it's likely that there's a psychological avenue there. That's useful, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think he knows that this is likely a problem with what's between his ears rather than what's between his legs. So there's a variety of solutions that he might want to try. Firstly actually speaking to his wife about what's going on, maybe with the support uh, of a qualified psychosexual couples therapist, might be of value for him to analyze exactly what function his AI girlfriends are providing for him. If there are emotional things that he's getting from them, is it worth checking whether those are things that he could be doing with his wife? Um, Could they schedule in dates to be close, uh, to talk more, to to laugh together without the expectation of sex? So Mm. there's not that pressure there for either of them so that he doesn't feel entirely like he's maybe becoming increasingly reliant on the on the AI girlfriends for more than just his masturbation needs. If he analyses the amount of time that he is spending and and arguably maybe the amount of money that he's spending on these AI girlfriends and in his mind that feels excessive, then maybe setting himself some limits and uh, working out how he's going to enforce those could, could be a good thing. I think, though, Silver made a great metaphor about food that really rang true here for me. He said... This man is never going to be able to take back the fact that he has now tasted the form of sexuality that can be available to him via these AI apps. It's like a new food. Mm. Once you've had it on your tongue, you you can't take that experience back. And as humans, we do tend to crave new tastes. So trying to do like a hard reset back to before, when when you like do a, go cold turkey and pretend it never happened, Rather accepting that you have t- have tasted this, you do like it, but there might be other foods that you can eat maybe with your wife to nourish you or maybe eating less of it would be good for you. That seems a healthier approach to nutrition, to sexual nutrition, than going on an ab- complete diet of abstinence, maybe.
0: Okay, fascinating. As ever, I learnt lots of things. Thank you. <laughs> if you have a question of sex and relationships as they pertain to you, what do you need to do with it?
1: Do not ask AI, ask A-L-I-X <laughs> by going over to modernmanwith nscouk and hitting feedback.
0: On which note, we have very nearly reached the end of this month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. is Daniel in Vero Beach, Florida, who says, "Ollie, my New Year's resolution this year is write to people I admire and let them know that. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, seeing as the easiest way, though, to get your attention is money, you know me so well, I've also sent you £25 via PayPal. Uh, I'm originally from the UK, and living abroad in a socially turbulent country where for all the freedom of speech not much seems to be discussed, (laughs) it is a nice reminder of home to listen to your thoughtful interviews and considered conversations. Uh, Daniel, look, you only live 90 minutes from Disney World, how much fortitude does one man need? But I am willing to make you ambassador for Vero Beach hell yeah. If you'd like to be an ambassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line, secure links on our website. Our theme music is by Django Django, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and we'll see you with something new on the 10th of March. I blame myself and the other Cause you didn't owe me